The Monster's Lair is a proud member of the Myriad Podcast Network. Disturbing, horrific, historical, anomalous, ancient, scientific, sensational, interesting, entertaining, malevolent, metal, criminal, conspiratorial, and occasionally fun and funny. Enter if you dare. Survive if you can. This is The Monster's Lair. Hello listeners and welcome back once again to the Monster's Lair. If you're new and joining us here, welcome and thank you for giving us a listen. If you are one of our longtime listeners, a member of what I call the Monsterage, thank you for returning. I, if you don't know, am the host, the monotone with a microphone, the trailer park monster himself, James J.D. Hutchins, and I will be the master of ceremonies for this episode. In this edition of the Monster's Lair, I will dive into the depths of the lair and learn about a great yet tragic event in the land of the rising sun, the Far East, Nippon, Japan, and its purportedly spiritually charged after effects. In this episode, I will be discussing the Fukushima disaster and the eerie ghost sightings that have been witnessed as a result of the widespread death and destruction it caused. So without further ado, let's learn about the ghosts of Fukushima. On March 11th, 2011, a magnitude 9.0 undersea earthquake 
occurred under the Pacific Ocean, 45 miles off the east coast of Japan's Oshika Peninsula. The event lasted six minutes in duration. It was the most powerful earthquake ever recorded in Japan, and the fourth most powerful earthquake in the world since modern record-keeping began in 1900. The quake generated powerful tsunami waves that reached heights of 133 feet and traveled up to speeds of 435 miles per hour. With waves of this nature, those on land who saw the warnings had only 8 to 10 minutes of time to evacuate before they were struck. Many of them had no idea what was coming. As a direct result of the event, the Fukushima Daiichi nuclear power plant experienced a level 7 meltdown of three of its reactors. A level 7 meltdown is the highest level on the international nuclear event scale. With a level 7 meltdown, there is a major accident which results in an impact on people and the environment as the result of a major release of radioactive material with widespread and long-lasting effects. To date, there have only been two level 7 accidents documented in the history of the world. The other besides Fukushima was the infamous, deadly, and catastrophic failure of the Chernobyl power plant on April 26, 1986 in Chernobyl, Russia. The Chernobyl disaster resulted in a death toll of 27,000, involved more than 500,000 personnel, and cost an estimated $18 billion in Soviet rubles, which is equal to roughly 68 billion U.S. dollars in currency. The official figures released in 2021 for Fukushima reported 19,747 deaths, 6,242 people injured, 2,556 people missing, and 228,863 people were still living away from their home in either temporary housing or due for permanent relocation. Estimates placed insured losses from the earthquake at a total of up to $34 billion. The area around the Fukushima site is still very much contaminated, as well as the surrounding ocean with radioactivity. Many claim that ghosts exist due to the fact that someone dies suddenly, without warning, or with unfinished business in life. If this belief is true, then no place would have a greater concentration of ghosts than Fukushima, Japan. With a tsunami that swept away not only thousands of people, but their homes and memories too, in a matter of seconds, including photos, books, family heirlooms, religious altars, and all other personal belongings, there was also the fallout from a nuclear disaster to contend with. The Fukushima area and its surrounding regions are a place of great grief, depression, loss, negative energy, tragic history, and great loss of life. It is no wonder 
there have been many reported ghost sightings in the prefecture. In this edition of the Monster's Lair, we will be diving into some of these stories. Ishinomaki, Miyagi, Japan, located in the country's northwest region of Tohoku, was one of the hardest hit regions from the events of the Tohoku earthquake and tsunami. Some of the most compelling stories of encounters with ghosts come from this region's taxi drivers. One particularly vivid account was the story of a woman who got into a cab months after the tsunami and asked to go to the Miyagi district which had been completely destroyed. After informing her of Miyagi's destruction, the cab driver admitted that the strange passenger then asked him, have I died? And disappeared. In another similar tale, a driver picked up a young woman near Ishinomaki Station on Matsushima Bay. Wearing a coat unsuitable for the conditions, she requested to go to the Miniyamihama district, a sparsely populated area outside of the central city. The driver, deeming it a bizarre request, asked if the woman truly wanted to travel there to, quote, an almost empty place. The fearful woman asked, Have I died? Then she too disappeared. Another local driver picked up a young man who asked to go to Hiroyama Mountain, parts of a small beautiful park in the Miyagi Prefecture and a zone ravaged by the tsunami. The driver set off, only to realize after a few moments and upon looking up in the rearview mirror that he suddenly had no passenger. To those skeptical about the driver's integrity, they all showed records via meters of trips started, then abandoned and unpaid to Yuka Kudo, a sociology graduate student who was investigating the accounts of her for her university thesis. Yuka Kudo found seven cab drivers who would speak to her about their ghostly encounters. All drivers that spoke to Yuka claimed that all of the ghosts appeared as young people. The region in which Yuka is studying lost over 6,000 people, the majority being young men and women. She was quoted as saying, Young people feel strongly chagrined when they cannot meet people they love, as they want to convey their bitterness, they may have chosen taxis, which are like private rooms, as a medium to do so. Many in Japan practice Shinto a religion with stronger emphasis on the earthly afterlife than Western religions. Many people here in Japan openly believe in the possibility of ghosts existing. Could this belief welcome spirits interested in interacting with the living to convey their pain and sadness of their sudden deaths? Is it possible that young people who've died suddenly don't realize that they're dead so they reach out to find their loved ones to make sure they're safe, healthy, and happy? Could it be so that once they get that closure or confirmation that they are indeed deceased, they can then pass on? 
Is it possible that those who do not get closure could wander endlessly as a restless spirit? Other sightings that frequently occur in the tsunami-affected areas of Japan are sightings and encounters with ghosts who appear to be soaked with water. Many stories have come from the region that describe tales of apparitions who appear to be dripping wet, walking the streets, abandoned ghost towns, and fields of rubble. The most famous of which is believed to be the ghost of an old woman who is said to haunt a refugee home in Anagawa and to have regularly sat down for a cup of tea there. Her neighbors would witness this occurrence of the known-to-be-dead woman on a regular basis, but none of them had the heart to tell her, the woman's spirit, that she was deceased. Upon her departure of the home, the cushion that would be left out for her was purportedly soaked in seawater every time her visits were over. There is another tale from a man who did not like going out while it was raining due to the fact that every time he did, he would see reflections of those who perished staring up at him from puddles on the ground, making anguished, tortured faces and silently crying out for help. One other account tells the tale of a woman who answered her door to a sopping wet stranger who asked for a change of clothes. She went off to find something. Then, when she came back to the door, she found a whole group of sad-looking people standing there just outside her home, all of them which were soaked to the skin. The connections between ghosts and water are nothing new. Many ghost hunters, investigators, and scientists who study paranormal activity have claimed for years that the most haunted areas are often nearby rivers, lakes, and oceans. The prevailing theory is that spirits draw from the energy of water and its EMF or electromagnetic field to more easily appear or manipulate the environment around themselves. With this in mind, it is no wonder that Fukushima and its surrounding villages have many ghost sightings. Japan as a whole is a large island surrounded by the Pacific Ocean. Add in the fact that the major disaster that has greatly impacted the nation was ultimately caused by that very ocean. Also, if you factor in Japanese culture's acceptance of the afterlife and spirits, which generally speaking, the majority of Japanese people view the line between life and death as a very fuzzy, blurred one, and the island nation of Japan could be a massive conduit for spiritual activity, assuming you believe any of this at all. It is also very interesting to note that one of Japan's earliest ghost stories ever documented comes from the Tohoku region, the very same area the tsunami hit the hardest, and in this very story there is reference to a great tsunami. The story is called Female Ghost in the Moonlight and was penned by Kunio Yanagita. He wrote the story during Japan's Kai era, which lasted from 1848 through 1854. Kunio was one of Japan's earliest folklorists. The story 
is as follows. It was a moonlit night in early summer, about a year on from the great tsunami. As waves broke gently on a beach half obscured in fog, Fukuji could just about make out two people walking along, a woman and a man. Fukuji frowned. The woman was definitely his wife. He called out her name. She turned and smiled. Fukuji now saw who the man was, too. He had been in love with Fukuji's wife before Fukuji had married her. Both had died in the tsunami. Fukuji's wife called to him over her shoulder. I am married now to this man. But don't you love your children? Fukuji cried out in reply. His wife paused at that and began to sob. Fukuji looked sadly at his feet for a moment, not knowing what more to say. When he looked up, the woman and man had drifted away. The story comes from Tonyo Monogotari, or Legends of Tonyo, written in 1910 by Kunio Yanagita, author's translation to English. Kunio Yanagita collected these types of tales from the village of Tonyo in Japan's northeastern Tohoku region, publishing them as Legends of Tonyo in 1910. His hope in publishing them was to rekindle the interest of inhabitants of big modern cities such as the island cities of Tokyo and Osaka as to have them not forget the feel of nature's mystery and magic and the unknowns of the world which Yanagita worried these people had begun to lose amid the noise, smog, hustle, bustle, big jobs, chores, and distractions of urban life. Almost 200 years later, I think Kunio Yanagita would be happy to know that people's fascination with ghosts and the unknown is still very much alive today, not only in his native Japan, but on a global scale of which he probably never imagined. The most thought-provoking of all activity associated to Japan's tsunami ghosts has to be the purported possessions of Tohoku residents by restless spirits upset by their untimely passing. Buddhist priest Taiyo Kaneda relayed a story to British reporter Richard Lloyd Perry, an 18-year resident of Japan at the time of the tsunami and a man writing a book called Ghosts of the Tsunami. A story of a man who he, the priest, helped rid of a spirit the man claims he was possessed by. A chronicling and dramatization of this account can be seen in season 2 of Netflix's rebooted Unsolved Mysteries series. Tohoku villager Takashi Ono claimed to Reverend Kaneda that he needed help and that he was possessed. Both Kaneda and Ono lived only miles from the coastline where the worst of the disaster had occurred. 
Both men reacted to the disaster in the following weeks very differently. While Kaneda helped countless people properly bury their loved ones, Ono stayed away from the disaster zone until he finally went on his own to face it months later. After seeing the monumental loss and devastation along the beaches and finally taking it all in and attempting to process what he saw, he returned home and had dinner with his family. After dinner was over, his family claims that he went into the backyard and started rolling in the mud, speaking in a voice not his own, and speaking and screaming in low, guttural, aggressive tones. His family was mortified, and they stood back in fear and shock at the man's suddenly odd and inappropriate behavior. The next day, he had absolutely no recollection of what he had done. After several more incidents, and the frequency of incidents intensifying, the Ono family sought out Reverend Tayo Kaneda for assistance. Kaneda performed an exorcism on Ono, and the man's behavior stopped. Kaneda is a practitioner of Shinto. In the Shinto religion, which means literally the way of the gods and is the indigenous faith of the Japanese people, spirits inhabit all things animate and inanimate. Many Japanese came to believe that because the tsunami took people before they were ready to die, their restless spirit still wanders the plane of reality. One of these spirits was the explanation given for Ono's case. Despite global polls suggesting that Japan is one of the least religious nations on the planet, Richard Lloyd Perry has come to learn otherwise. Perry reported, quote, I hadn't realized how real and alive the cult of the ancestors and the cult of the dead is. The other thing I learned is something I should have known anyway, but that grief and trauma express themselves often very indirectly. Perry personally believes that the case of Takashi Ono is one such example of this. Even though Kaneda performed an exorcism on him, as well as many others who believed they were possessed by the same type of tsunami spirits, Perry is unconvinced that the supernatural is really behind this phenomenon. He did, however, agree with Kaneda on the principle that these spirits are real to whomever believes to have seen them, and in that context, should be taken seriously. Perry stated of a conversation with Kaneda that, quote, He never said to me that he didn't believe them. He said what matters is that the people believe in them. It doesn't really matter whether you believe in ghosts. What's real is the suffering and the pain. So what do you think, listeners? Are the tsunami ghosts a manifestation of widespread collective grief? Or are they just simply manifestations? I believe it's important to tell this story to relive this tragic event to memorialize all of those who were lost. It is also important to explore this story and through telling it ask questions about what awaits all of us in the afterlife. Does the afterlife exist? 
If so, in what form or fashion? Do we all get to experience it? This story allows us to explore the possibility of the existence of ghosts. Not all of these stories I have shared on this episode may be true, but even if one of them is, then the existence of ghosts is confirmed. This opens up a whole new realm of possibilities of what the already curious and fascinating world we live in has to offer. Another reason to tell this story is to be aware of how these types of disasters happen and what, if any, possible warning signs they present, as well as how to handle the aftermath of such tragedies. British statesman Winston Churchill wrote, Those that fail to learn from history are doomed to repeat it. As terrible as an event as this was, and as much damage and as loss of life as it caused, there are things we can take away from it and use towards a positive outcome and maybe to prevent future events like it from happening. Lessons from the past may not always ward off doom, but they can provide interesting insights into the present and maybe even the future. Hey, what's going on, Monsterage? It's me, the monotone with the microphone, the trailer park monster himself, J.D. Hutchins, and I have a question for all of you. Are you guys looking for some awesome merchandise? Well, look no further than Burial 13. Burial 13 is a streetwear brand from right here in Fresno, California, my hometown, and they have some sick, badass, awesome, horror and comedy themed designs for your shirts, shorts, and other apparel. I'm happy and proud to announce that the Monster's Lair is an ambassador for Burial 13 Apparel. And by being an ambassador, I can offer all of my listeners a special discount code. That code is TML10. Once again, TML, the Monster's Lair, 10 the number 1010. So go to www.burial13apparel.com. Check out their badass merch, their cool designs, and all their products. Pick something you like, throw that bitch in the cart, and in the promo code area, make sure you put in TML10 and save yourself 10% off your next Burial 13 purchase. If you'd like to learn more about Burial 13 Apparel, how they were founded, what they're based on, and what kind of products they offer, you can go back to the beginning of Season 2 and check out my sit-down one-on-one interview with a brand founder, Thomas Burrell, on TML Talks, Episode 1. Monsterage, I appreciate you guys listening. I appreciate all of your support, and this is a unique and cool way that I can help show that appreciation and return the favor. So definitely go and check out www.burial13apparel.com right now. Check out their badass merch. And as always, Monsterage, thank you for listening and supporting the Monsters Layer podcast. Hello, I'm Bearded Breed. The master has formally denied your request to leave. Please enjoy your stay in the monster's lair.
This is The Monster's Picks. In this edition of The Monster's Picks, I'm staying in Japan and featuring the nation's first ever black metal band, who later evolved into a band that used dark, abrasive, horror-themed elements to ascend to a niche and genre all their own, breaking away from their black metal past. Known as the very first black metal band to emerge from Japan, Sai was born into the extreme metal landscape in 1989. Tokyo-based songwriter and vocalist Marai Kawashima formed the band and from the beginning led Sai to prominence among the early black metal bands who at the time were mainly based in Norway. Much later after their founding in 1993, the band released their debut record Scorn Defeat. Up to this point, Sai made their name off playing live and tape trading demos. Scorn Defeat was released on Death Like Silence Productions, the label owned by the late Mayhem guitarist and black metal legend Euronymous, also known, known as Oystein Arseth. Over the decades since 1989, Sai has become much more than just another typical black metal band and more than just a Japanese band. The roots of the music are clear dark, abstract, extreme, and at times eerie and terrifying. Sai's approach has always been outside the box, and they have composed music based in blackened, thrashy death metal riffs and blast beats, but in addition the music has been layered with percussion of jazz, keyboards, horror movie soundtracks, samples, orchestrated choir singing, elements of classical music, and progressive rock. Sai's music will leave headbangers who have not heard them in a mesmerized daze. In this edition of the Monsters Picks, I will be covering Scorn Defeat specifically. Scorn Defeat is Sai's most traditional sounding black metal album and yet is simultaneously untraditional at parts. The album formula, lyrically speaking, can be compared to their Scandinavian peers. The album takes its title from a line in the title track from Venom's 1981 album, Welcome to Hell. On Scorn Defeat, the line itself is set on the track At My Funeral. The first edition album cover features a black and white illustration of a giant oni, a Japanese demon, standing in flames, holding a giant flaming sword, grasping a grown man by the head, while another grown man is falling into the flames below in the background. The second edition, reissued in 1994, features an image of guitarist Shinichi Ishikawa. Both of these covers are long since out of print and are extremely rare due to poor distribution as they were published on Death Like Silence following the death of Euronymous. The personnel on the album are of course the leader and frontman Marai Kawashima, on vocals, keyboard and bass, Shinichi Ishikawa on guitar, and Satoshi Fujinami on drums. The track listing is as follows. Side 1, Track 1, A Victory of Dakini. 2, The Knell. 3, At My Funeral. 4, Gundali. Side 2, Track 5, Ready for the Final War. Track 6, Weakness Within. And Track 7, Taste Defeat. 
size scorned defeat is a testament to the power of metal to unite weird kids of all backgrounds and lifestyles together. Despite hailing from a country with barely any extreme metal scene, and despite living thousands of miles away from any players in the black metal movement, Psy still struck up a correspondence with Mayhem figurehead Euronymous. The band impressed him so much that Psy were signed to prestigious Deathlike Silence label at the time, cementing their place in black metal history and placing them alongside such company as Burzum and Enslaved. As far as horror goes, all extreme metal has elements of horror themes, and I always looked at extreme metal albums as many auditory horror films that I could play in my mind's eye while listening along to the music. This album is a perfect example of that very thing. For the film in this edition of the Monsters Picks, I'm picking a 2002 Japanese horror film directed by Hideo Nakata and written by Yoshihiro Nakamura and Kenichi Suzuki based on the short story collection by Koji Suzuki. That film is Dark Water. The plot follows a divorced mother who moves into a rundown apartment with her daughter and experiences supernatural occurrences including a mysterious water leak from the floor above. Yoshimi Matsubara, in the midst of a divorce mediation, rents a rundown apartment with her daughter Ikuko. She enrolls Ikuko in a nearby kindergarten and gets a job as a proofreader in a small publishing company. The ceiling of their apartment has a leak that worsens on a daily basis. Matsubara complains to the building superintendent, but he does nothing to fix it. When she tries to contact the apartment above directly, she gets no answer. Strange events then often recur. A red bag appears no matter how often Yoshimi tries to dispose of it. Hair is found inexplicably in the tap water. Yoshimi gets glimpses of a mysterious long-haired girl around the complex. She becomes regularly late in picking up Ikuko from school and is stressed further when her ex-husband tries to take Ikuko. Several incidents remind her of the time she was abandoned as a child. When Ikuko herself sees the long-haired girl in a yellow raincoat, she becomes ill. Yoshimi discovers a flyer for a missing girl named Mitsuko Kawai who had attended the same kindergarten as Ikuko, but disappeared about a year ago. Mitsuko had worn a yellow raincoat and carried a red bag. Yoshimi discovers the apartment upstairs is Mitsuko's former apartment. The film slowly builds and plods along to an amazing conclusion from here. The film was released theatrically in Japan on January 19, 2002, where it was distributed by Toho and received a total domestic gross of $906,344. The film grossed a total of over $1.4 million worldwide. Dark Water has an approval rating of 80% on Rotten Tomatoes. Much like all great Japanese horror titles, an American-produced remake of the film was released in 2005 to much more mixed reviews. The American version was directed by Walter Salas and starred Jennifer Connelly and Tim Roth. In a strange twist, many have noted eerie correlations between the film 
and the real-life true crime story surrounding the mysterious case of the highly publicized death of Elisa Lamb at the Cecil Hotel in California in 2013. Many have pointed out that the film's most basic plot points mimic that of Elisa Lamb's death, with the LAPD being led to the roof of the Cecil Hotel after guests complained of black-tinted or dark water coming from their taps. Others also noted that Dark Water's trailer shows multiple scenes where the elevator buttons in the apartment complex appear to malfunction, similar to the viral footage of Lamb acting strangely in the hotel elevator that initially made her case worldwide news back in 2013. You can learn more about this case by watching the excellent Netflix documentary entitled Crime Scene, The Vanishing at the Cecil Hotel. Well, listeners, that completes this edition of the Monsters Picks. Thanks for listening. I hope you enjoyed these picks and definitely go and check out Sai's Scorn Defeat and Japanese horror film Dark Water anywhere they are available. If you would like to give any feedback about the Monsters Picks segments or suggest any albums or films for me to check out and review, you can contact me at www.themonsterslayerpodcast at gmail.com. Thank you, listeners. This is The Monster's Lair 242. My daughter won't stop crying and screaming in the middle of the night. I visit her grave and ask her to stop, but it doesn't help. It's that time for some credits. Uh, First and foremost, rest in power, Tom the Nightmare, Tommy Cunningham. This episode in particular is one that I really missed having you around for. Uh, We could have got into some really deep philosophical conversation about ghosts and the afterlife. And uh, there's not really a day that goes by that I don't miss you being around. But when I do great episodes like this with excellent content that I know you would have enjoyed, it makes it that much more difficult. But with that being said, I hope wherever you are, you're in a better place now than you were when you were here. And you're pain-free. Next up is my man Alan, the Chief. Alan Bailey, creator of the logo for the podcast. And the cover art that you see on Spotify, Anchor, basically everywhere you look and see the monster's lair, you'll see his art. Um, He was really the first person to make a contribution to the show. And I really appreciate him for that. And I just want him to know that he's my brother till the end. And I want to thank him. Next up, we have Polly Manners, a.k.a. The Bearded Breed, host of The Bearded Breed podcast. Uh, Goes without saying by now, you guys know who he is. You know what he means to my podcast and career. I basically wouldn't be doing this if it weren't for him, I don't think. Helping me launch into it. And now we're forging in a new direction with the Myriad Podcast Network, along with Brandon Davis. 
Um, shout out to Brandon for coming in and being the third man and helping get this uh, thing off the ground floor and making something that has a lot of prospects to it and is very, very interesting going forward. I think it's going to be something very unique, very cool, and I can't wait to do more work for the Myriad Podcast Network and see where we can take it. Next up is my guy Mike Morgan, a.k.a. The Mad Thinker. He has many contributions to the Monsters Layer podcast, whether it be stories, interviews, appearing as a co-host, appearing as a guest, contributing to music with his beats. If you want to check any of those out, definitely go to Instagram and search for him. He's at Mad Thinker. That's at M-A-D-T-H-I-N-K, the number three R on Instagram. Thanks, Mike. Appreciate everything you've done, man. Since we're talking about music contributions to the Monsters Layer podcast, I definitely got to add to my shout-out list to Zach Mueller. Um, he's the man behind many one-man band projects, one of which is being Urshinen, who is now contributing music and sound beds to the Monsters Layer podcast. You guys have heard a couple in this episode behind some of the stories I was telling. Um, his sound is definitely unique. It's definitely eerie. It fits perfectly with the show content. And I will definitely be using his stuff going forward. And I want to make sure that he knows he is appreciated. And I want to shout him out in this segment. So thanks, Zach. Appreciate it. And welcome to the Monsterage. I'm not sure if these next two guys will hear this. Uh, I'm not sure how much they really listen to their show or how much they listen to any other podcasts at all because they always are working on their own podcast and I'm sure the podcasts that they do listen to if they listen to any probably aren't horror related but I want to give a huge shout out to Big Ren the Legendary and Juvi Desayuno from the Hard Camera Podcast the Hard Camera takes a hard look at pop culture and wrestling Um, They have a great dynamic together on their show. They have a great back and forth. Juve is always looking at pop culture and taking a hard look at it and calling things out. And Big Ren, as everyone knows, is the ultimate baby face. Um, And you guys would love the tag team of Juve Desayuno and Big Ren, the legendary on the Hard Camera podcast. If you're a wrestling fan, even if you're not a wrestling fan, definitely check out the opening segment of their show and get their take on pop culture going on in the world today. And of course, I got to shout out my beautiful wife, Christy, my two lovely daughters, aka the Heathens. I hope you guys liked their contribution in the early part of this season for the Heathen cast. Um, I'm taking a break on that for now. We did 10 segments. They're super short. I hope you guys enjoyed the kid-friendly aspect of those, and maybe it's something that you guys can listen to with your kids to get conversations started and get them interested in more esoteric, more obscure topics. Maybe if they have a fledgling interest in paranormal or strange topics, you can use those segments to open up dialogue with your children um, in a comfortable, non-judgmental type space. That was kind of my mentality going in. Um, But yeah, definitely shout out to Christy and the Heathens. I love you guys. 
and I appreciate everything that you guys do for me. For research on this episode, I have to give a shout out to the Reddit, Wikipedia, and YouTube communities, as usual, for always sourcing great content and being a great space to find some interesting links to look some of this stuff up and do research on. Also for research, I gotta give a shout out to www.cosmopolitan.com for some excellent articles, as well as www.milwaukeeindependent.com, www.unsolvedmysteries.com, and the Unsolved Mysteries series on Netflix, www.aon.com, that's A-E-O-N, and www.allthatsinteresting.com for excellent facts, articles, and stories all relating to the Fukushima disaster and the subsequent ghost sightings after the fact. It was all great material, found some great links, read some excellent stories, and it was a great place to do research for this episode and get all my facts straight. And of course, I'd be remiss, but last and definitely not least, I gotta give a huge shout out to all the listeners, the members of the Monsterage, and all the fans of the Monsters Layer podcast. I appreciate all of your guys' continued support and listening to this show. And, uh, you know, this show exists for you guys, for entertainment purposes. And it's a passion project of mine that you guys keep going. And I appreciate you greatly for it. So thanks for listening. And you guys will hear me on the next edition of The Monster's Lair. Thank you. And as always, a very special and super shout out to the band Poor Man's Poison from Hanford, California for allowing me to use their song The Devil's Price for the season two and hopefully beyond Monsters Lair podcast theme song. Thanks, Poor Man's Poison. I can't express in words enough how much I appreciate what you guys did for me in the show. And thank you for letting me use your content.